The Seahawks currently have just three offensive tackles on their roster, and only one of them has started an NFL game. So that looks like a major position of need. Rob Rang and I are going to be breaking down top offensive tackle prospects for this year's draft and much more on our latest installment of Locked on Seahawks. You are Locked on Seahawks, your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked on Podcast Network. Your team every day. Greetings, 12. This is Corbin Smith, your host for Locked On Seahawks. Joining me for our Tuesday show, my co-host in crime, Rob Rang. Thanks, as always, for making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. As always, got another loaded episode coming your way. We're going to be breaking down a number of offensive tackle prospects for the upcoming 2022 NFL Draft, a major position of need for the Seahawks, currently only three players on the roster at that position. And we're going to be starting a new series looking at previous quarterback transitions in Seahawks history. We're going to go way back to 1984 for this episode. So let's get to it. Now for your lead story here on Locked on Seahawks. A lot of us were stunned when Russell Wilson got traded last month. It was an unexpected move, even with all the rumors and speculation that was out there. Until it actually happened, I think most of us didn't expect that Russell Wilson was going to be wearing anything other than a Seahawks uniform this season. You can count Noah Fant as someone that was in that category. He was a Broncos tight end, and then suddenly he was no longer a Broncos tight end. That trade to Denver immediately impacting him as he was one of the players included in the trade, sent back to the Seahawks, and he had to step back a little bit and take a breath and realize, wow, this really happened. And I'm sure he would have loved the opportunity to catch passes from Russell Wilson in Denver, but for them to get Wilson, they had to give up some good players. And now fans going to get an opportunity to continue his career in Seattle. And I thought he had a lot of really interesting things today to say today in his introduction to local media. We got to start with Drew Locke, who has been throwing passes to Noah Fant during each of his first three seasons obviously was benched last year, got to play towards the end of the season. But these two have a very good relationship. They've worked off the field. And Rob, I think that genuinely sticking with what the organization has said, Fant's had the experience catching passes from Locke. He knows the physical tools that he has under center. He sounds to me like he is pretty confident that there is still a really good chance that this young man can be a franchise quarterback in a better situation. Yeah, I think that Noah Fant sounds like a guy who has a uh, you know a possible career when his NFL playing days are over in the talent evaluation business, Corbin. Because I, I would one hundred percent agree with all of the um, all of the comments that that Noah Fant said about his own game and and about Drew Locks as well. Um, I, I would agree I, with what you said earlier that uh, I thought that it was a very interesting interview that that he gave. Um, you know, kind of that self reflection. You can only imagine, you know, just uh, being in his situation. You were, of course, a, a first round selection yourself, going to a Denver Broncos team out of the, uh, you know, out of, out of college, and and you're expecting to to go there and have the same type of success that you had in college, and and uh, of course that that did not happen for Fan. He was a good player. Kind of talked about how he wants to kind of break through that 600 yard mark. 
you know, I, I fully expect him to be able to do so. I think the Seattle's going to ask him to be a little bit more of that speed uh, receiver down down the seam than than you know more in that case than than what he was with the Denver Broncos. And part of the reason why I expect that. It is because of just the way that he fits in with what Seattle already has with Will Disley as being one of the better run blocking tight ends. And Noah Fant's game is more about being a pass catcher. And then, of course, just the rapport that he already has with Drew Locke, that he's been playing with him the entire time. They, they, they came into the, in the league uh, during the same rookie class, of course. And that is, to me, the most interesting thing about what Noah Fant said it is about Drew Locke and just kind of acknowledging what anybody who has watched the tape uh, during Drew Locke's college or NFL career will tell you that there are some wow throws on tape. Um, and, and that's the thing is that if he can just develop a little bit more consistency, and frankly, this is for both Fant as well as Locke, then I think that both players have a chance to be really good football players in the NFL. And, you know, considering what we have discussed in the past is that, you know, it sounds like Russell Wilson essentially kind of put Seattle in a, in a difficult position. They had one team that they could negotiate with, that being the Denver Broncos. The fact that Seattle got the players that they did, not just the draft picks, but the veteran players they did. We'll be talking about Shelby Harris here a little bit later. But with Drew Locke's talent, Noah, Noah Fant's upside as well, I think that you have some players that are going to make this this turnaround uh, of the roster than the typical rebuild that I think a lot of people elsewhere are, are forecasting. You mentioned the run-blocking aspect and the plateauing at 600 yards. That's been where Noah Fant's been at the last couple of seasons. And you can just tell by – the way that, you know, the tone that he had with reporters today, that there has been disappointment in the numbers that he's put up. I think he was expecting by this point that he was going to be a Pro Bowl tight end, maybe even an all-pro tight end. He holds his talent up to that type of standard, and it just hasn't happened. And obviously Drew Locke was a successful starter his rookie season for five games, won four of those games, and then bottomed out his second season and then lost his job to Teddy Bridgewater last year. So, Fant didn't fade that much. He was still a productive player, but maybe didn't necessarily meet the expectations that the organization had. Now, both these guys have a chance to turn things around with a new team, a new culture, a new coaching staff, new offensive scheme, one that's similar to the one they had their rookie years in Denver. And so that makes this exciting. And, you know, me being the run guy that I am, the run game supporter, I was most excited about his comments, his genuine comments about wanting to get better as a blocker, because I still think that that is clearly the area of this kid's game, that he has the most room to grow, the most room to develop. He came into the league pretty raw as a blocker, which is surprising coming from Iowa, because typically their tight ends are going to come into the league. We saw what George Kittle did, obviously different types of players, but typically their tight ends come in. That is a run-heavy offense at Iowa. Those guys typically come into the NFL well-prepared to be able to block at the next level. But this is a guy that just has a different skill set. He was still growing into his body, still growing into his physical tools. So he's improved the last couple of years. But I think he's going to have to take a big step forward, especially in this offense. He knows. He, he made it clear today. He knows that this offense is going to be balanced. They are going to want to run the football. So the onus is going to fall on him to put the work in necessary to be able to block. And at the same time, 
He wants to do it at a lean 250 pounds. He thought he was a bit too heavy last year, and it impacted his route running, his speed. He wants to be at his fastest while still getting stronger around that playing weight. And so that's what his goal is going to the season. I think that he outlined very clearly what he wants to accomplish, what he's working on, and with his relationship with Drew Locke, I think that's the key here. The fact these two guys have played together as much as they have already at this point, that's maybe what gives them the best chance to hit the ground running, even in a new scheme, and find some early success for the Seahawks, which of course would be a big deal for the football team as they try to stay competitive in the NFC West. Yeah, no question about it. And I think that uh, the, the, the way that Noah Fant fits into Shane Waldron's offense, I think is really encouraging as well. And we were we were giddy about the possibility of Gerald Everett in this offense. And, you know, he, he had his opportunities. Um, you know, I, I think that there there were plenty of things that were schemed up for him by Shane Waldron that, that Russell Wilson, let's face it, I mean, he was an unbelievable player for a long, long time in Seattle. But at the same time, clearly one of the areas in which he struggled was getting the tight end involved. So I, I do expect just almost by just the, you know, an addition by subtraction that Seattle is going to be looking to get their tight ends more involved, almost regardless of who the quarterback is is uh, under center, so to speak, um, considering how many, how many times I think they're going to probably be taking some snaps out of shotgun this year. Um, but whoever the quarterback is, the fact that it's not Russell Wilson, I think that the tight end is going to be featured more. If it is Drew Locke, then it, as we just discussed, um, you know, there is already a great deal of familiarity with Noah Fant and what it's not to like. I mean, my goodness, he has got the speed and the hands of a wide receiver. And so it's like the point that you made previously about – you know, blocking. I mean, yeah, you, if the Lamborghini could potentially pull a boat, but at the same time, the reason why you got the Lamborghini is to let it run. Exactly. And that's what you want to do with Noah Fant as well. I, I really think that this is a Jimmy Graham Pro Bowl caliber tight end here. Seattle just has to, you know, basically allow him to be the player that he can be. I think with the wide receiver talent, the running back talent that you already have on this offense, then he really should be able to splash this year. I expect career numbers out of Noah Fant, and, and it remains to be seen what we'll see with the quarterback position with Drew Locke. But again, I do think that the fact that Noah Fant has been collecting passes from Locke all this time, he does have obviously a different perspective than anybody else in Seattle. What's most intriguing is that this is a scheme for Shane Waldron that if it operates similar to the one that Sean McVay runs in L.A., you can have a secondary tight end that's like a Gerald Everett that you're not going to be asking him to be an inline wide tight end all the time and blowing up defensive ends. You can find other ways to get him involved as a run blocker that will suit his physical strengths while still taking advantage of his athletic tools as a receiver. We saw that with Everett last year. I'm expecting them to use Fant in similar fashion. The Seahawks, as we've mentioned several times this last segment, they're going to have a new quarterback under center. It's going to be Drew Locke or maybe Baker, maybe Baker Mayfield. Whoever it's going to be, it is a time of transition for the Seahawks under center. Kicking off a multi-part series, we're going to be looking back at previous notable quarterback changes in Seahawks history. We're going to zoom all the way back to 1984 here in a moment. BetOnline.net is your number one source for all your betting needs and sports info. 
Find all the latest sports developments, including this week's upcoming Masters Championships and the start of baseball season, as well as odds, podcasts, and reviews for all the different leagues going on this season. Bet Online is your continued source for all sporting and wagering information, including live betting, esports, and scores. So make sure to head to their website today or use your mobile device to learn more about the trends and action. Bet Online, where the game starts. You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast, Tuesday edition. I'm your host, Corbin Smith. Joining me as always, Rob Rang. Thanks for making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. And make sure to check out the Locked On NFL podcast five days a week. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and all major platforms. You can also stream it five days a week on YouTube. We've got analysts covering all 32 teams around the league. So get your insight and analysis for every team out there, make sure to check out the Locked On NFL podcast. The Seahawks are going to have a new quarterback under center, Russell Wilson now in Denver. Currently, they only have Drew Locke and Jacob Eason on the depth chart as the only quarterbacks. Currently, Geno Smith, there have been some discussions, has yet to sign back with Seattle. Potentially, he could be coming back at some point here as the offseason unfolds. But regardless, there is going to be a new starting quarterback under center when the Seahawks open the season in September. This is not the first time, and it won't be the last time, that the Seahawks are going to have a major transition at quarterback. So what we're going to be doing over the next couple of weeks, a multi-part series looking back at notable quarterback changes in Seahawks history Rob, we're going to take the time machine back to 1984. Some of our older listeners may remember this. I wasn't born yet, but I've done my homework. I've watched a lot of games from the 80s on Classic Rewind. 1984, this has kind of been building up for a couple years, but Jim Zorn finally hands off the torch to Dave Craig. Craig becomes the new starting quarterback. We had seen a lot of Dave Craig in the previous couple of seasons coming out of tiny Milton college, but they kept Jim Zorn as the starter for a couple of years. He ended up having seven seasons as the starter was an all pro in one of those seasons. And he was a very solid quarterback on some bad football teams, helped the Seahawks at least become relevant, had a few winning seasons with him at the helm. But by 1984, they had reached that point where, we need an upgrade at this position. If we really want to get to the playoffs, they had not been in the postseason once in their first seven years in existence. To get to the playoffs, we need a quarterback that can take us to the next level. And so Chuck Knox decided it's Dave Craig time. Yeah, that, that's the thing is that, uh, you know, over the first, uh, what, seven, eight years that the, the Seahawks were a franchise, it was Jim Zorn who was being coached by Patera um, as, as the, you know, and and because of that, you know, you, you had a, a certain philosophy. And with Jim Zorn, you, you had a guy who, you know, by today's NFL standards, I mean, basically six foot nothing, 180 nothing. I mean, he was just a, a small, slim, run around kind of dynamic dual threat quarterback almost a little bit ahead of, uh, you know, ahead of his game. Um, but then as, uh, as when Chuck Knox came in um, and, and Seattle was very much looking for more of a ground pound uh, kind of an offense, and that was the kind of the joke back in the day is ground Chuck type of offense, um, then I thought that Dave Craig made a little bit more sense in terms of what he could do as a downfield passer. And, of course, a huge part of Seattle's success throughout the Jim Zorn as well as Dave Craig era was the, the, the spectacular play at the wide receiver possession 
position, excuse me, from Steve Largent, obviously. And, and so that was one of the things that made that transition. And, and that makes that makes Seattle's current situation that much more fascinating. As I mentioned before, you're going from Patera to Chuck Knox as as the head coach. So there was a you know a, a clear switch at, at the guard between the coach and then who is he going to select at the quarterback position. That's not the case, obviously, here with Pete Carroll. And I think that it's interesting to mention as well just the just the idea that that, that Pete Carroll has a great uh deal of experience in this from playing the college game and coaching at the college level, not just in coaching at the, the NFL level um, where of course in the college level, you're going to be having that transition of just as, as, as players move up through it. So to me, that's one of the th fascinating things about this is we kind of look back in, in time at the Seahawks franchise history and, and how they've gone from quarterback to quarterback and had their success. You do have the same coach now, who, again, is going to be flipping the switch here at the quarterback position. I think that allows Seattle to be that much more successful moving forward. Yeah, you look back at 1984, as you mentioned, there was the change of coach, which had a lot to do with this. If they still had Patera as the head coach, maybe Jim Zorn hangs on to his job a bit longer. But this was something that had kind of been speculated for some time that Dave Craig was your quarterback in waiting. The Seahawks did not have that guy on their roster with Russell Wilson the last couple of years. They had not drafted one since Alec Magoo. That obviously did not work out. But in the early 80s, the Seahawks did have Dave Craig, who was an undrafted player, again, from Tiny Milton College. For him to come in and eventually become a quality NFL starter – he was really the first star quarterback that they had. And that's not taking a slight at Jim Zorn, but he threw more interceptions than touchdowns in his career. And he was a very versatile dual threat quarterback, but not a great passer. And that particular season, 1984, they actually were four and three going into their week eight game. They were winning football games in spite of their offense, not playing up to its potential. And that was when midway through their week eight game, Chuck Knox decided it's time to hand it over. It's Dave Craig time and went five and three to close out the season. They made the playoffs for the first time in 1983 was such an exciting season for the Seahawks because they ended up winning not one, but two playoff games got to the AFC championship game. And so this was the first season that Craig was a starter for at least part of the year. He earned the job by leading the team to the AFC Championship game. Then I got spanked by the Raiders. But nonetheless, it was the first time they've been in the playoffs, and they had significant success. So by the time 1984 rolls around, Jim Zorn's still on the roster. But at that point, it's Dave Craig's job. He makes three Pro Bowls. He gets the Seahawks to the playoffs several more times. They never replicate that success that they had in 1983. But he was the first quarterback that really carried them to the postseason, put up some big numbers had a number of franchise records that have now fallen to Russell Wilson and Matt Hasselbeck, but really had an underrated career, not just in Seattle, but with a number of other teams that really stacks up favorably, favorably against a lot of the quarterbacks from his era. Oh, I mean, it stacks up with Hall of Fame quarterbacks. I mean, exactly. Dave Craig was, yeah. was a terrific quarterback uh, for a long, long time uh, in the NFL. I think just, uh, you know, off the top of my head, I want like 17 year career I believe as as a quarterback in the NFL, I mean, that just speaks for itself, um, you know. And and again, that was one of the things that I wanted to make sure that we kind of think about is is just the fact that you did have Dave Craig on the roster, as you know, who was kind of learning from Jim Zorn. 
and, and just how important that that is. And then there's a lot of our listeners, Corbin, right now who who don't remember Jack Patera. They don't remember Chuck Knox. They, they certainly don't remember Jim Zorn and uh, and Dave Craig. And, and they were two terrific football players. Maybe they'll remember guys like uh, you know Trent Dilfer and Matt Hasselback and the way that that transition kind of went down. Um, and even even Tavares Jackson. Uh, you know, and, and just the way that just the they were necessary were not necessarily the most physically gifted quarterbacks, but they were incredibly gritty and, and they played the game the way that it was supposed to be played. Um, and so their teammates kind of responded to that. And so th- these are some Seattle teams. You mentioned the 1983 squad that, that wound up going to the um, the AFC you know conference championship game. They lost to the Raiders. The Raiders then went, not only did they thump Seattle, they, they thumped Washington in, in the Super Bowl or were champions that year. I mean, that's how close Seattle was uh, to being a Super Bowl, uh, you know, contender uh, in that, way back in 1983 when Dave Craig was just kind of starting off. So you, you think about when Seattle went to the Super Bowl with Matt Hasselbeck, when Seattle almost went to the Super Bowl with Dave Craig, when Seattle did go and win the Super Bowl with Russell Wilson. The, to me, the most encouraging thing about all of this idea of a quarterback transition is the fact that when Seattle did go or at least be close to the Super Bowl, they did have young quarterbacks. They they were not the 30-year-olds that you might expect. Um, And so that's the thing is that everybody is kind of, oh, the sky is falling here because we have to make a transition at the quarterback position. As long as you get the right guy, then you you can play. (laughs) You can play very And that's the thing is that that's why you have to get the right guy. And that's what makes this a very critical transition and not one that you often see teams do. Usually it's a head coach and a general manager who have one quarterback and they have their success. And then that, and then time moves on. It is going to be fascinating to see if Pete Carroll and John Schneider are able to duplicate the, the success that they've done previously, because it just doesn't happen very often. It's never happened, obviously in Seattle. On our Wednesday episode, we're going to be shifting in time to the 90s because you mentioned making sure you get the right quarterback. We're going to provide an example of what happens when you don't get the right quarterback in a transition from one quarterback to the next. So we'll be looking at that in our next part of our series here in Seahawks franchise history, quarterback transitions. Let's transition to the 2022 NFL Draft. Coming up here in a moment, the Seahawks currently have big issues at the tackle position. Not only do they have a low number of tackles on the roster, there's very limited experience, and there are a number of good tackles in this year's draft class. So Rob and I are going to be checking out some of the top guys that might be available at number nine overall and a few players that might be available early in the second round when the Seahawks pick twice. This episode is brought to you by Rock Auto. With the ever-increasing numbers of makes and models, it's now impossible for your local chain auto parts store to stock all the parts you need. Why endure the often pointless or seemingly intimidating questioning and wait while the person behind the counter orders the parts on their computer, choosing the only brand their warehouse happens to carry? You can avoid this frustrating situation by using your computer and accessing rockauto.com at home and in your pocket. Why choose to spend 30, 50, even 100% more for the same parts from a chain store or car dealership? Rock Auto is a family business serving do-it-yourselfers for over 20 years. Their prices are reliably low for every customer, and they have everything you could need, whether it's brake parts, tail lamps, motor oil, even a new steering wheel cover. Go to their easy-to-use website today to find the solution to your auto parts needs. Visit rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck. And write Locked On in there. How did you hear about us, Box? 
so they know that we sent you. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need. RockAuto.com. You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast, Tuesday edition. I'm Corbin Smith, co-hosting with me, Rob Rank. Thanks for making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. It's time to shift back to the present and the upcoming 2022 NFL Draft. To this point, we've looked at a couple of positions so far. Quarterback, we've checked out wide receivers. We also looked at cornerback. Sticking on the offensive side of the football, maybe the biggest need on Seattle's roster, even aside from quarterback, at least you have a young quarterback in Drew Locke that has some upside, could still be a franchise quarterback. The Seahawks have very little experience at the tackle position. Right now, the elder statesman of this group is Jake Curhan, who was an undrafted rookie last year. And so this team has very little experience. They have three tackles on the roster. I would think that this is a position at pick number nine. It might be your number one priority, Rob. Yeah, I think anybody's listening to our, our podcast today, Corbin, who might be going to Locked On Bets, uh, might want to put a little bit of a wager on Seattle to select the offensive tackle. And it's not just because of the depth chart, as you just described. It's also Seattle's history. Um, You know, in the 12 years that the Seahawks uh, have been, you know, being run by Pete Carroll and John Schneider, they've had eight first-round selections. And almost half of those have gone to offensive tackles, including the very first one, Russell Okung, back in the day. Another offensive tackle in James Carpenter the year after that, Earl Thomas being in between the two of them. Um, And then Jermaine Effetti as well. Um, I, I think that when you look at this year's draft class, I fully expect there to be at least the two offensive tackles come off the board, uh, you know, before Seattle is, on, is up. Um, you know, Evan Neal from Alabama, Akeem Kwanu, uh from North Carolina State. If either one of them are available to Seattle at number nine, I think that John Schneider is doing cartwheels down the carpet, and that is the selection for the Seahawks. So as much as I'm excited about the, the pass rushers and I'm intrigued by some of the quarterbacks, I do think that this is the more likely position for Seattle if those two players are on the board. What's going to be fascinating is if it's Charles Cross or Trevor Pennings of the world who are the top-rated prospects. I'm not so sure that Seattle would be willing to uh, pull the trigger on either one of those players at number nine overall. But that, to me, is going to be the conversation here because there's no question that is a huge area of concern. There, there's no question that there are some elite players in this draft class. It's just, is one of them going to be available to Seattle at number nine overall? That's the biggest question. Yeah, I think John Schneider, I agree with you 110%. If Evan Neal was there at number nine, I don't even know if I would stop at cartwheels. We might be seeing <laughs> some things that we did not know John Schneider was physically capable of doing in the draft room if Evan Neal falls there. Because let's face it, Rob. You know, maybe there's a 1% chance that happens, but I think even that is too too high of a prediction. I just don't see any way that this guy falls to number nine. I think he's the first tackle off the board. He's 330 pounds, but he looks like he should be playing defensive end. I mean, he's ripped for an offensive lineman. This dude is just, is just incredible. His physique is incredible, and he's a very good football player on top of it, coming from Alabama, so... I don't see any way that he's there. I think that the last couple guys that we had on our list there, Charles Cross is probably the least likely of those three to be. I think there's a chance that those top three tackles could all be gone in the first seven or eight picks because 
this is a position that is a major area of need for a number of teams. And I think there's a really big drop off and maybe cross is kind of in that mid ground there between the first two and players like Trevor Penning, who to me are more in that twenties, low thirties range, as far as prospects go in this draft, there's a pretty significant drop off there. So I can't see the Seahawks wanting to pick one of those guys. Maybe if cross is still there, they would pick him at number nine, but I've talked about this time and time again. Trevor Penning has the potential to be a franchise left tackle. He is a physical freak, incredibly athletic, and he'll maul people. But I see some technical stuff that really scares me coming to the league. He is going to need to be coached up. I don't know that he's going to be ready to start on day one for you. And Seattle right now, if you're going to use a first-round pick at number nine in a tackle, it better be on a guy that you think has a really good chance to play right away. I just don't see that in Trevor Penning. Now, you trade down and move later into the first round and recoup picks, then I think pick 18 or pick 20, then it would make a lot more sense to pick him. I just think for top 10 that that's really reaching. It's just like the quarterback position. You don't want to reach for a tackle. We saw it with LJ Collier at the end of the first round a couple years back. Probably a second or third round player, but there was a run on defensive ends, so the Seahawks panicked and picked him. You don't want to do that with a top 10 pick at the tackle spot, even with it being their biggest need on the roster. You just can't afford to do that. Yeah, and I I don't imagine a scenario in which Seattle actually does that. I mean, that is again, that's not been their history. I mean, say what you will. There's been a lot of people in Seattle who have just blasted James Carpenter and Jermaine Effetti, and, and to a lesser extent, Russell Okung as well. And yet, all three of those players, when they left Seattle, wound up going elsewhere and being starters. And that's what you're looking for out of your first round selection. Now, again, this would be very different. You're talking about top 10 selection, number nine overall. You were not expecting them just to be capable stars in the NFL. If this if this roster rebuild is really going to take forward, you know, move forward, then then this number nine overall selection has to be a very good player. Um, and I do think that those top two players we just talked about, Evan Neal and Iki Iquanu, and I do think that there's a chance that one of them is going to fall. In the last couple of years, Corbin, the, the, the first offensive tackle off the board has fallen a little bit further than I thought that he would. Penny Sewell this past season was uh, an example of that. And so I think that there's a chance that uh, that one, maybe even both of these players are available. I'm not so sure that Seattle would necessarily select Neil over Quanu. I think that Quanu has a lot of really intriguing traits to him. But let's just for the sake of argument, let's just focus in on the other three players here because everybody is assuming those top two guys are going to be gone. To me, this is a really a conversation about Charles Cross because I think that when you look at him, he is a guy that because of his pass protection ability, then he is super intriguing to a lot of teams. He is just a little bit narrow in his bottom half. And that's something that the Seahawks have not really liked from their offensive tackles in the past. They want a big, beefy kind of guy. Now, this is a different, completely different offense that, that you know, Seattle is going to be scouting for with, with Shane Aldrin, Shane Waldron, excuse, excuse me. Um, but at the same time, Again, you're going against 12 years of kind of history of what Seattle has been prioritizing if you're going to go with, with, with Charles Cross. He is more of a wall-off, almost like a basketball player out there in run blocking. He turns and seals guys rather than physically moves players the way that Aquanu, the way that Neil, the way that Penning uh, does. 
Penning does have that size, but let's again kind of go back in history. When have the Seahawks invest in an early selection in a player that had the you know the the the, the small school to big program kind of jump that you're going to be expecting a kid from Northern Iowa and Trevor Penning to be able to do? Now he was impressive at the Senior Bowl, but he wasn't dominant. He was he was very good. But you said that some of the inconsistencies that you see on tape, if you want just like a highlight real stuff, Trevor Payne's your selection. If you actually watch a little bit more tape rather than just the highlight real stuff, there are some misses. There are some struggles. He does overcompensate, get too far outside, and then opens up the, the interior, and that cannot happen um, against the, the, the savvy pass rushers you're going to see in this division. So I would agree with you. I, I think that uh, if you're going to be selecting Trevor Penn and you have to be taking him a, probably a little bit lower than number nine overall. And the same kind of thing with Bernard Ryman, with a guy like Abraham Lucas. Uh, you know, I mean, th- there's some interesting kids, interesting prospects. The kid from Tulsa is, is interesting as well. I just, for number nine overall, I think that this is a conversation about, uh, between Evan Neal and Ikim Aquanu, and if neither of them are available, that just makes it that much more likely that you have a pass rusher who is ready to come in and compete for Defensive Rookie of the Year honors. And I think that's really what this is going to come down to. Is this the pass rusher or is it the pass protector at number nine overall? Yeah, and I think where you and I maybe differ just a little bit on this is that I would include Cross, and I'd say those top three are worthy of the number nine pick just because of the scheme difference. Because as you pointed out, I think they will be looking for different style offensive linemen. And I've seen enough tape from Cross that suggests to me that he can impose his will on people when he wants to. And I think that's something that is going to improve as he gets into the league and he gets into a pro system. I don't think this is a guy that is – coming from an air raid scheme that just, well, he's just a pass protector, can't run block. I don't envision that from him. So I guess I view him a little bit higher. I I don't know if he's worth the number nine, but I would at least put in consideration for those three players. And then there's that big drop-off. One other guy that I really like from this class, I wouldn't pick him in the first round, but Rasheed Walker from Penn State. He's been a three-year starter for the Nittany Lions. Very athletic, light on his feet. You see flashes where he plays with, the nastiness the Seahawks like. And the reason I use the word flash is because it come and goes. He's going to need to be much more consistent in the NFL. But this is a guy that has started games at both tackle spots. I think he's a left tackle in the league. And I think, unlike some of the other guys we just mentioned, coming from the Big Ten, the rugged Big Ten, facing some of these elite pass rushers that are going to be coming into the league, I think this is another kid that could start pretty quick for you at left tackle. So if you're looking for that early solution – Again, don't reach at nine if it's not a guy that you think is maybe worthy of that pick. Get yourself a blue chip player, even if it's not your biggest area of need, because there are some really good tackles available on day two. I would include Abraham Lucas, as you mentioned, in that as well. I think he is a very good tackle that could be ready to play pretty quickly in the NFL as well. Yeah, to me, Abraham Lucas is is one of the you know more nationally underrated prospects in this entire draft class. Uh, he's played his entire career at the right tackle position, and that's where I expect that he will yep. remain. But his workouts were so good that I can understand some team possibly projecting him uh, to the left tackle position. Having gone to his pro day myself, Corbin, again, I still think that that he is a right tackle, and that's where he should stay. But I think he can be a very very good one. And if Seattle does not take a, a tackle, at number nine overall i do i do think that abraham lucas might very much be in play at number 40 or 41 
Yeah, I think he and Walker and maybe Darian Kennard as well. It, the jury's out on how the rest of the league views him because there have been reports that some scouts think that he's a tackle to the next level, and there are some scouts that are like not athletic enough. He's a guard. I personally love what I see on film at tackle. I think he's a right tackle in the NFL, and he is a player that has played top competition in the SEC, elite pass rushers for multiple seasons on one of the best offensive lines in college football. We've already talked to Luke Fortner. I mean, that's a really good offensive line that's kicked out some NFL prospects the last couple of years. So there's a number of guys on day two. Again, don't reach. This is a really solid tackle class. Maybe not as good as it was a couple years ago. That was one of the better tackle classes that I've seen. But this is still a very solid group with good depth. So if the Seahawks don't get one at number nine, fans shouldn't be panicking because there will be an opportunity to get good value on potential starters on day two and maybe into day three as well. As always, thanks for making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. Now make sure to check out the Locked On NFL Draft Podcast for your second listen. Ryan Tracy and former NFL cornerback Eric Crocker bring the draft to life every day with insight and analysis on college football prospects and front offices. It's free and available wherever you get podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at Corbin Smith NFL. You can follow Rob at Rob Ray. Make sure to check out the Locked On Seahawks podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and all other major platforms. You can also watch our podcast five days a week streaming on YouTube. Coming up on our Wednesday episode, we're going to continue our quarterback in transition series. We're going to look at the dreadful 1990s, what happened after Dave Craig left Seattle and the Seahawks tried to replace him. Plus, we're going to continue our draft prospect series on the defensive line, looking at top edge defenders for this year's 2022 NFL draft class. Enjoy the rest of your Tuesday. Thanks for listening. Go Hawks.